Hi, my name's Josh. I'll tell you more about it in just a second. Let's get right to it with this. This is what I was thinking about before I got here. In the last couple of years, uh, Dave Chappelle, who's thought by many to be the greatest living stand-up comedian, has made headline after headline with one decidedly politically incorrect uh, Netflix special after another. But in 2005, uh, Chappelle made headlines and bewildered the public for very different reasons. He had abandoned his enormously popular uh, Chappelle show despite being offered some $50 million for a third season. And then more than a decade after all that, Chappelle described his decision to leave the show by relaying something he recalled uh, from a nature documentary. And it had to do with catching baboons. See, baboons love salt, apparently. So to catch one, one simply uh, digs a small hole and places within said hole a handful of salt. The curious baboon pursues the salt, but realizes to its dismay that when seizing the salt with a clenched fist, it cannot draw its hand from the narrow opening. So the only way to get its hand back is to release the salt, something the baboon can't bring itself to do, before it is trapped and caged by a bushman. Now, in Chappelle's analogy, the salt trap was that $50 million paycheck the artistic and moral compromises necessary to accept it. But for much of the world, and this was everywhere for a brief season, releasing that salt, the $50 million paycheck, was at best a strange decision and at worst a foolish one. But really, it's a really old story, and it's a conundrum that's been weighed in on by none other than Jesus himself. And Jesus' approach to this problem was so incredible that it went on to change the way his earliest disciples understood the entire idea of community and this thing that we call the church. So with that, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 4. What? What? What's, what are you laughing at now? I was like, now that the slide with the Costa Mesa thing was on there, I was like, I don't know what's going on behind me at any given moment. Just tell me if something's... All right. Before we get to work, let's talk candidly for a second. Though, uh, like Alex said, your pastor and I have been friends for many years now, during many of which, like you said, we worked together, collaborated, did ministry stuff together, beautiful stuff. Even so, I'm a stranger to many of you, I realize. That's the nature of being a guest teacher here this evening. I'm truly grateful to be here, honestly. The thing is, and it's not my fault, the implications of tonight's teaching are pretty intense. You can blame Jesus for that. This guy has something to say about everything you think and say and do. He's really frustrating that way. When a guy goes around saying something like, come and die and follow me, and that's his invitation to apprenticeship, it's obvious enough that he's not terribly concerned with keeping us comfortable at all. So I've also uh, been told that due to my dry tone and sarcastic delivery, my audience sometimes struggles to understand when I intend to be funny. So... Far be it from me to show up at a guest house and bum everyone out. Uh, so I says to myself, I says, how can I make this bumpy road uh, a bit smoother without compromising the teachings of Jesus? That's important to me. And my solution was this. I decided to provide a series of pleasant palate cleansers. Uh, not to water down the message at all, but to offer kind of a brief reprieve or two from the heaviness of it all. At first, I was going to tell anecdotes about Alex Retman, and I was like, I don't want to get this man in trouble. So uh, here's an example of how this is going to work. 
I'll say something like, I said a second ago, Jesus' invitation to discipleship, you know, was deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Meaning, no one can take on the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus without first destroying their own felt right to do as they please. To follow Jesus, you give up your right to yourself, which is intense, but look, here are some cows that have been shampooed and blow-dried. It helps, right? <laughs> All right, you guys in Acts chapter 4? You ready to do some work? Great. Let's begin reading with Acts chapter 4, verse 32. This is a great story. It goes like this. All the believers, all these new apprentices of Jesus, were one in heart and mind. They had unity. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which apparently means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This story is easily among the most famous in this dense chronicle of the early church that we call Acts. It's often cited as kind of an idyllic portrait of the first organized church of Jesus really getting it. A romanticized, you know, why can't that be us scene to remind us of the kind of thing possible amongst those who follow Jesus. That, and since it's in the Bible, we argue about what it means. Sometimes uh, this text is described as, our, uh, as, as described as or used to argue for a kind of socialism, but there are two big differences between this community acts and socialism, at least as a political theory. The first major difference is that Jesus did not argue for or institute a political system of any kind. Though Jesus lived through one of history's most politically turbulent periods, he neither advocated for nor endorsed a way of doing politics or government. Which is funny, because the Messiah was expected by almost everyone to be first and foremost a political figure. And Jesus' refusal to speak to or participate in politics became primary among the many ways that he was misunderstood. But the community of Jesus' disciples was always designed to be a kind of uh, alternative society, never a political system nor a power structure. So Jesus did not endorse nor establish for his church capitalism or socialism or communism or fascism or any such thing. But the second and even bigger difference here is that in Acts 4, we are reading about a communal redistribution of money and positions that is entirely voluntary. It is not enforced nor coerced by any authoritative infrastructure that we know of, which is fascinating because we do have uh, records of first century Jewish communities that instituted and enforced community purse guidelines, a kind of required sharing of possessions. But here, new followers of Jesus choose of their own volition to live in a communal setting and to treat the things they have as if they don't actually belong to them at all. 
And it's not a, a complete theological renunciation of all property. We continue to read about disciples of Jesus meeting in people's homes, so they still had those. They had some stuff, and they just kind of share it, flo floating it around all willy-nilly like, you need some of my stuff, here you go. Oh, the community needs money, here, hang on, I'll sell some of my stuff, and they can have that, which makes the whole thing even more incredible. No one forced them to do it. There was no existing creed that we know of, no papyrus where it was written, disciples of Jesus must renounce possessions and share all resources with their community. They just did it. Now, in my experience, people tend to read the story in one of two ways. The first is to panic and then immediately set to work trying to explain it away. And the reason one might feel that way is, of course, because they don't want to share their stuff, which is easy to pick on, but it makes a lot of sense. Most of us have been taught, like good Americans, that what you earn is yours and you have the right to keep it. So this story in Acts makes some of us panic. Or the other reading is whether we feel like sharing is great or whether we don't like it, whatever it is, we feel, dare I say, compelled by a story like this. And it sounds to us like a kind of impossible ideal. We think, man, it's amazing. We probably should be doing something at least a little bit like that, but it doesn't seem terribly realistic. And I was studying this passage all week, and I found it's actually not that complicated a text in terms of original language and background and all that. It kind of tells you what happens, and what happens is pretty much what it sounds like. A bunch of Jesus' disciples all living in community, voluntarily treating their own money and possessions as if they don't belong to them at all, but are to be redistributed as need within the family dictates. Good night. No, I'm just kidding. That's not it. There's more. Which, of course, begs the question, the bigger question behind all of it is, why the heck would they do that? You could say love, you know, that's a popular way to answer Jesus' questions. Here they all, all getting along, sharing everything. It's like, here, Barnabas, please have some of my money and possessions. Oh, no, Peter, I couldn't possibly. Here, you have some of my money and possessions. Because they love each other so much, you know. <laughs> Obviously, love has something to do with it. But remember, they, these are apprentices of Jesus of Nazareth. It's not just a hippie commune. So what made... What made Jesus' apprentices choose to live this way? So let's go backward in time and look at the teachings of Jesus so we can kind of put the picture together one piece at a time. Turn to the left in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. You can consult the table of contents if you like. If you're unfamiliar with the New Testament, don't feel bad. It is new. You like that? I've been workshopping that one. I'll, I tend to like it much more than any given audience, but you guys are a step up. You're reinforcing my decision to continue to use that joke. <laughs> Matthew's the first book in the New Testament, and as you know, it's one among four first century biographies of this controversial figure we call Jesus of Nazareth. Beginning in uh, chapter 5 of Matthew's biography of Jesus, this ever provocative teacher begins to offer what is essentially his manifesto for life in what he called the kingdom of God, something that we now call the Sermon on the Mount. So let's look at Matthew chapter 6 and read one part of the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 19. Matthew 6, 19, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Now, treasure here is, in essence, the things that we keep because of the value that we place on them. To have treasure is part and parcel of the human condition. Even small children who cannot fathom wealth or the very poor who have none know what it means to treasure something. Even Tom Hanks had Wilson when he was alone on that island for five years. Um, Jesus here mentions the type of treasure that, in his words, are on earth. And by this, he means the tangible and intangible things that we tend to treasure that are, by their very nature, finite or perishable. Money is the obvious example, but it's also possessions. It could even be relationships or your reputation or your career. Even your precious, soul-sucking Instagram accounts will go the way of MySpace and Friendster eventually. They are finite, because, Jesus says, they can be destroyed like, uh, by things like moths and vermin, or they can be stolen by thieves. So instead, he offers an alternative, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Now, that wording is a bit tricky for us. If you grew up in the church, the term treasures in heaven is likely something of a, a platitude used to describe the outcome of thankless good deeds, at least it was in my upbringing. I'm from Georgia. We used to say things like, man, sure, cleaning up after the potluck is no fun, but treasures in heaven, you know, that kind of thing. So if you didn't grow up, <laughs> if you didn't grow up in the church, that term is uh, likely just as confusing, treasures in heaven. Sounds really weird, but this is not a statement about an eventual reward in an afterlife. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it like this. Oh, what are you doing, man? What, Connor? What are you doing? We're, we're not even close to the cat yet. That's a big, pretend you didn't see it. It's a big punchline. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. I'll just read you the quote so as not to tempt fate. I'm sure it's my fault and not yours. Don't worry about it. This is a guest teacher. He's loose cannon. N.T. Wright puts it like this, as with other references to heaven and earth, we shouldn't imagine he means, don't worry about this life, get ready for the next one. Heaven here is where God is right now, and where if you learn to love and serve God right now, you will have treasure in the present, not just in the future. So Jesus is not referring to a system of reward in which his disciples will forego the idolatry of money and possessions so that when they die, they float up into the clouds and they'll get something better after that. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, the word heaven often acts as a surrogate for the word God. So Jesus is talking about treasures in God, an internal, an, an eternal investment in the things of God right now over and against an investment in finite comfort or security or having stuff. So your treasure on earth is doomed, but your treasure in God is not doomed. And the text concludes with one of the more famous sayings of Jesus, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There are a number of ways to render these words very plainly. One such way is the way you spend your money reveals what is most important to you. Or... If you'd like to know the true character of a person, look at their bank statement. Now, depending on the study consulted, somewhere over one billion people in the world live on less than $1 per day, and about three billion live on less than $2 per day. One statistic suggests that as much as 20% of Americans live below what we call the national poverty line. Compared to a huge swath of the world population, most of us, myself included, are rich. So I think the common American tendency is to immediately dismiss ourselves from the discussion around wealth and affluence because, you know, like this young, uh, young single person and the young, or the young family or the college student, a lot of you guys, I'm sure, this are like surviving on ramen or whatever, imagine themselves poor 
and uh, though their lifestyle would be considered luxurious to much of the world. So the upper class observes the wealthy or super rich, and they think of themselves as poor by comparison. The middle class observes the upper class, think of themselves as poor by comparison, and on down the economic ladder. But the point is this. If you eat food regularly, or drive a car, or live in a home, or frequent restaurants, or decorate your homes, or enjoy basic creature comforts, or even just one or two of those things, you are rich by a global standard, which is sobering a sobering thing I, to point out, I know, but here's that kitten again. <laughs> is he up there now? There he is. It, it would have been more impact if we hadn't seen him already, right? Can you just imagine it went that way? Edit the podcast so that it sounds like it went the way it was supposed to. Ha, ha, oh, yeah, cut the laugh from the first time and put it over there. <laughs> so that line in tonight's text from Acts 4, those who owned land or houses, refers to well-off disciples of Jesus in this new movement that's beginning to grow out from a tiny little movement. And in context, that's most of us in the room this evening, well-off disciples of Jesus. And what did the well-off people do with the land and houses they owned? They, quote, sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. In other words, this is a portrait of one group of Jesus' followers that are taking his teaching very seriously. And it's not just what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn a few pages to the right in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. When you get there, let's read Matthew 19 beginning with verse 16. This is a story many of you know, I'm sure. A man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. So the answer starts weird and then gets weirder. Jesus begins by questioning the question, Why, sir, are you asking me what is good? Only one is good, he says, and the one to whom Jesus refers here is God. So Jesus is framing both his impending response and his own authority to give it by appealing to God himself, meaning, sure, I have thoughts, Jesus says, but listen, I'm not making this stuff up. I am not substituting God, Jesus is saying. I am revealing God. Thus, it makes sense why he directs this Jewish man to the Jewish law given by God himself. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Now, notice Jesus has revised the man's verb. The man asked, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus tells him how to enter life, which is important. The man wants a transaction, which sounds uh, familiar. Today, many think the same way. Say a prayer, invite Jesus into your heart, nice and tidy, done. It's a transaction. One scholar I read this week said that Jesus transfers the man from a market to a road, to a long way rather than a transaction. And interestingly, Jesus' proposed method of entering life is to keep the commandments of all things. Now, follow me for just a brief tangent, and then we'll get back on track. Jesus' take on the Jewish law was that it was not the truest revelation of God's heart or will, meaning what God really wants. It was more like a uh, corrective nanny designed to get sinful Israel back on track. So the metaphor I like is the one where God is a parent who likes his kids to enjoy playing outside with freedom and joy and safety, but they keep running into the road as kids do. You can't have that. It's dangerous. They could die. It's an issue. So God says, listen, here's a fence, okay? I don't want you to die. Here's a fence. Don't cross it. Don't go in the road. But then these kids immediately set to work climbing the fence. So God says, look, we're going to the backyard, all right? 
Neither the fence nor the backyard are what God really wants, but they're important. They are a corrective measure to stop sin and to steward right living so they can learn how it is that you live in the world. God doesn't want his kids in the backyard or behind the fence forever, but the backyard and the fence aren't inherently bad. They're actually good for their intended purpose. Now, you and I, uh, we are not first century Jews, if you haven't noticed. We have the teachings of Jesus. We have the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been reading from already, the clearer revelation of God's desire and of Jesus' way of life. But for this guy, Jesus begins with the law. If you know the story, there's a lot of those laws, some 600 plus. So look at verse 18. Which ones? The man inquires, which is a fair question, I think. Jesus replies, you shall not murder, adult, don't commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus cites a handful of the Ten Commandments, six, seven, eight, nine, and 5, if you're counting. And interestingly, the commandments Jesus highlights are the commandments that address human relationships rather than divine relationships. So why is he emphasizing the treatment of other people here? Let's find out. Verse 20. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? He understands that something's still missing. Verse 21, Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. So, twist, the guy was rich, very rich. And his great wealth, Jesus says, is a barrier between the man and the kingdom. There weren't a ton of rich folks in Jesus' world, so this gentleman was probably well-known and well-connected, and scholars suspect he's come to Jesus kind of winking, hey, teacher, I'm a well-connected dude, you're a well-connected dude, what's it going to take to me to get on the inside of this whole kingdom thing? Name your price, teacher, which is likely why Jesus does exactly that. He names a price, but the price is everything, and it has to be paid not to Jesus, but to the poor. And it is a price simply too high for this rich man to pay. Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, and don't think of that as like an unrealistic invitation on Jesus' part. The Greek word Jesus uses isn't exactly the way we use perfect. We hear perfect and we think without error of any kind. But the way Jesus uses it is more like, if you want to be brought to full maturity, or if you want to be complete and whole, he wants this man to redistribute his wealth, not renounce or destroy it, but to redistribute it, and it should, in Jesus' mind, be given to the poor, and not just some of it, all of it, if you want to be perfectly mature. And now we learn that this man does not actually keep the heart of the law the way that he claimed. His love for his stuff overpowers his love for God and for other people. So Jesus tells this rich guy that if he can somehow part with all of his wealth, give it away to the poor, then he'll learn what it actually means to be rich. And this is not some, uh, you know, like prosperity thing, hey, make a donation so God can make you even more rich. Notice there's more than just the command to abandon his wealth. Jesus' final word is, then come follow me. So that's not even the end of the instruction. Don't just give up all your money and stuff. Give up your entire way of life and come follow me. Remember, this is likely a well-known, well-connected, rich man. He's being invited to a wealthless life on the road with a poor peasant itinerant rabbi. And you can read that as Jesus' typical high ask. He does that all the time, and it is. But look at it this way. Jesus is also welcoming this man into his inner circle, into his community. So he's saying, yes, give up everything. It's going to be really hard, but then follow me. You won't have to figure this out alone. I will walk with you and teach you every single day. 
Jesus is closing the circle between his first question and his final statement. Why do you ask me what is good? Come follow me. I will show you what is good. If you want to know what's good, if you want to know God, follow me, Jesus says. Now, maybe you're thinking, like many of us, yikes. Uh, But it must have been an issue unique to this particular rich man. So, to provoke us, Jesus goes on. Verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. If you want this to hit even harder, one translator I read this week rendered that first line from Jesus, and I quote, Amen, I tell you, it will be practically impossible for a well-off person to get into the kingdom of God. Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Remember that line for later. Now, you guys still awake? You all right for a little bit more? Thank you. Here's the problem with this text, and it's a big one. We do not want to see ourselves in this rich man. And sure, we don't, you know, because he rejects the gospel, and that's bad. We don't want to do that. That's not what I mean. We don't want Jesus to ask us to sell everything and follow him. And honestly, for years, whenever I've looked into this text, I've heard people rushing to the same basic points. The first being, well, Jesus doesn't ask all his disciples to sell everything, which is true. He doesn't. Peter still has a house, and it benefits the early uh, movement of Jesus. Some of the fishermen still have boats, apparently, to which they return after they think for a moment that Jesus is dead for good. Heck, even the villainous tax collectors turned disciples aren't commanded to get rid of everything like this guy is. So citing all of these true things, some kind of wag their worried finger at the text and say, see, see, we don't all have to give up all of our stuff, which is true. But in his commentary on this passage, scholar R.T. France agrees that these points are relevant, but goes on to say this, there is, however, an undeniable element of self-justification in such exegesis of this passage by the wealthy a category which, in comparative terms, includes almost all Western readers of the gospel. That's us, by the way. Another scholar, Dale Bruner, agrees, writing this, We believe that Jesus intends every disciple and every generation to hear this command to the rich man as a command to them to do something with their assets that will indicate that their discipleship to Jesus is real. All of us are addressed by Jesus in this story at the point of our possessions and are asked to say, is it I, Lord? Readers should be careful to avoid the particularist, only the rich man interpretation of our text. In every disciple, something needs to change economically if we are to follow Jesus' word with integrity. Finally, this is my favorite one, with wonderful candidness, Robert Gundry puts it like this. That Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue the command. <laughs> and, and man, I know that last one is a doozy, but look at this young couple so happy and in love. <laughs> that, <laughs> nothing. Stone face over there. That was, that was the softball for the evening. Thank you. <laughs> We want an escape hatch 
from this passage, and really it makes perfect sense. It's easy to pick on. We can all feel, oh my gosh, we're the worst, but it makes perfect sense. We're Americans. Affluence is the air that we breathe. No, Jesus does not ask every one of his disciples to divest every cent, to sell everything, and to give to the poor. He could have, but he did not do that. Having money is not inherently wrong. In fact, well-off disciples with the maturity to hold their resources with an open hand have historically, beginning in the first century all the way up to here, and I'm sure at this very church, enabled the church to thrive through their generosity, through financial divestment. Having money and stuff is not inherently wrong, but, and please listen to me on this, it is inherently dangerous. Like alcohol or sex or food, money can be wielded sinlessly. It can. But it can oh so easily corrupt your very soul. Throughout all four Gospels, when you hear stories of Jesus approaching someone, whoever they are, wherever they are, and calling them, hey, you, come follow me. In every case, they drop their nets, they abandon their boats, they leave behind careers and lifestyles and worldviews. In every case, that is, except one, this one, the rich man. In all the Gospels, every time Jesus says, follow me, unlikely people follow. The only thing depicted in the Gospels as an insurmountable obstacle to accepting the call of Jesus is money and possessions. And notice this text doesn't accuse this man of using his money to do injustice. In fact, some scholars assume that given the great value for poor relief among first century Jews, he could have very well been charitable. It wouldn't have been that out of the ordinary. The text doesn't say that he was stingy or that he was debauched or scandalous with his great wealth. All we know is that he has it. All we know is that he doesn't want to give all of it away, which seems pretty reasonable to a lot of us. One theologian notes this. To be rich and a disciple of Jesus is to have a problem. Christians, particularly, particularly in capitalist social orders, are told that it's not wealth or power that's the problem, but rather we must be good stewards of our wealth and power. However, Jesus is very clear. Wealth is a problem. Scottish philosopher Alcidere MacIntyre observed that riches are, from a biblical point of view, an affliction, an almost insuperable obstacle in entering the kingdom of heaven. Again, this from Bruner. Next slide, Connor. Thanks, man. Jesus' word overpowers every other occupation and preoccupation, but money is so powerful that it alone can resist Jesus' word. This story is put in the gospel to warn us of the demonic power of money and, and of real estate. The man's problem and ours is not great wealth, which is true of uh, only a few of us. It is many things, which is true of almost all of us in the West. One more. Stanley Hauerwas notes this. Our temptation is to think that Jesus' reply, with God all things are, are, are possible, is, is there to let us off the hook. Being rich is a problem, we may think, but God will take care of us, the rich, the only way God can. Yet, such a response fails to let the full weight of Jesus' observation about wealth have the effect it should. Jesus' reply challenges not only our wealth, but our very concept of salvation. To be saved means that our lives are no longer our own. Concern for wealth doesn't always manifest in lavish lifestyles and opulent households. It could be the fretful anxiousness with which you handle your money. It could be nervous penny-pinching or, or hoarding a savings account or big plans for financial safety and security and comfort under the guise of being a responsible adult. Aspirations for a certain career and big dreams to have a certain kind of checking and savings account. The context in which you and I live is set up 
to keep us blind to the way money stands to corrupt us. The Western mind wants badly to simply drift in the warm and gentle current of its own financial imagination. Money is good. More money is better. We don't owe anyone our money. It's our money. The disciple of Jesus has to maintain a deliberate and concentrated sobriety, drag themselves up out of the lazy undertow and say, no, King Jesus taught us to hold our money and our possessions with an open hand. They don't belong to us. They are not to be exhausted on our own appetites or hoarded for our own perceived longevity. They are to be redistributed in the name of generosity to the poor, to those in need, for justice, for kingdom causes, for the church. Not everyone is being asked to part with every single cent, but all of us are being asked to open the American death grip on our finances, however big or small they seem to us or anyone else. If you want to follow Jesus, it no longer belongs to you. You don't get autonomous control over your bank account. And that makes many of us feel like this rich man who went away sad, the camel that could not pass through the eye of the needle. But remember Jesus' trademark hardcore teaching that ends with an encouragement. With God, this is somehow possible. Now, before we end, let me show you uh, something back in Acts where we first began. I'll just read it to you guys for the sake of time. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, we read this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Then listen to this. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there's a ton there. You guys have already talked about this kind of stuff. But if you know the story, this is the singular moment when something the people of God had anticipated and desired for centuries and centuries finally comes to pass. The Spirit of God, who once made really glorified cameos in the story of the Bible showing up on noteworthy occasions to empower one prophet or one king, is now poured out on all of Jesus' followers in one fell swoop. Here in Acts 2, for the first time in human history, the the empowering presence of God himself is now active and indwelling, meaning it is inside us. So when we arrive at chapter 4, the text we read earlier this evening, we're starting to see the way this spirit-filled community lives and functions. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. This is a community who has not only endeavored to take the teaching of Jesus very seriously, but who has been empowered by the Spirit of God to realize the full radical scope of those teachings in their lives and in the world around them. And it's easy to look at a story like this and start to feel as if, oh, man, they're so good at it, we're so bad at it. But even here, the model is far from perfect. In fact, spoiler alert for where you're going next, the very next story is about someone withholding money from the church and lying about it. So that's not great. So if you couple those two stories together, it starts to feel like more of a familiar picture, a community with so much potential, capable by the empowering of God's spirit of so much good, but in our brokenness, sometimes screwing it up. This is, I'm afraid, the story of the church. It's a beautiful but imperfect story. We tend to lift this story from Acts about sharing, redistribution of goods. We lift it up out of the text, and we trim away the sobering origin with Jesus' hardcore teachings, and we trim away the less glamorous anecdotes that proceed it. 
But to my estimation, this is less of a snapshot of an idealistic moment in the church and more of a picture of the types of people we can become when we take the teachings of Jesus very seriously and are empowered by his spirit to realize them in the world. Jesus taught that accumulating money and possessions corrupts your very soul. But he didn't teach a kind of voluntary pauperism, per se. The key to Jesus' kingdom economics was divestment. Sure, make money, acquire things, thrive in the culture, in the economy, whatever. But then, give it away. Later in Acts, we, we get one of the few quotations from Jesus that doesn't appear in the Gospels, easily among his most well-known sayings where someone quotes Jesus, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Almost all of us understand that true and good and beautiful things are in many ways very costly. Things as simple as like friendship or your vocation or a dream or marriage or family or parenting or community, none of these things are easy or simple or straightforward. In everything, Jesus is teaching us that if we allow him to empower us, to let go of anything and everything that stands between us and him, we will be more free. Jesus isn't calling us to a kind of miserable, monk-like, disciplined self-denial. He's teaching us self-denial as the door through which we access life to the fullest. It hurts, it's very difficult, and it often seems impossible. But with God, somehow the impossible things become possible. So with my last couple of minutes, let me just offer with a tremendous amount of humility, it's been a long story for me, some ideas that have been helpful for me and my family. Feel free to think on them or reinterpret them or take them or leave them, whatever you want to do. All of what I'm suggesting uh, presupposes that you have some kind of budget in place. Really, technology has made things outrageously easy for you. Whatever season of life, however young or old you are, there's no reason that you can't. Even if you're, you know, like live with your parents and you're starting to, you have an allowance or something like that. You can absolutely start to learn what it means to organize your funds and to divest them. So the idea is that you have an income, relatively big or relatively small um, well, I realize there's a spectrum there, but at some point the income arrives and might be you know, frequent and regulated or it might be from time to time, depending on your gig. The first thing that happens is a surgical dissection of those funds. A, a planned, disciplined amount goes to your church. Not a tip, uh, not uh, you know, like some off to the side, but a gift of generosity. Many of us start with the 10% thing based on the ancient spiritual art form of tithing. It's a great place to start. And then you go from there. Another portion goes to justice. That could be something like sponsoring a kid or a recurring donation to a charitable cause that you participate in or believe in. You could throw in on someone's adoption fund or GoFundMe or participate in the DHS thing, all that. Again, not random, not a tip, a planned portion of your income with every single income that comes in. Now you have bills to pay, adulthood and all that for a lot of you. Thing is, uh, not all bills are bills you need to pay. There's what? Basic groceries and electricity, gas and water and whatnot. And then there are the optional luxuries but still come in bill form, which are, you know, like your cable bill or Netflix or what, whatever it might be. So go with me on this. There's grown-up bills and expenses like electricity and food for your children, good things. 
And then there's optional bills like iPad data and Hulu or something. The former goes in a different category than the latter. They're very different things. The latter, the optional stuff, that's money that you are spending on you. And remember, every time you make a financial decision to spend money on you, you are deciding not to spend that money on someone else. And you get to do that. It's not inherently wrong to do that all the time. The question is, how much do you want to do that? And what is it doing to you? Years ago, I realized that I don't need uh, to buy or own lots of clothes, personally. So I have a few copies of the one outfit. When any part of it wears out, I replace it with only used clothes and only below a certain price point. My wife, Abby, is more interested in clothes than I am, easier on the eyes and all that. Um, but she has the same standard, so she only shops to replace damaged or worn-out clothes, only a few outfits, almost entirely used, and the only time she shops for clothes just for the heck of it is if someone gives her like a gift card for Christmas or something like that. And really, that's how we get almost any expendable thing that we just want. We're still normal humans that want to buy a thing from time to time. Um, so if I, I like to buy movies or a book or a record or something like that, but if I were to just do that out of nowhere, just because, Abby, and this has happened, would actually stop me and say, where did you get money for a book? <laughs> and I would say, it's just a recent thing that actually happened. I said, I still had a Powell's gift card from Christmas. And I, had to, I showed it to her. And it's not like a scary thing or anything like that. But I'm like, look, I really did. She was like, oh, okay. If I were to just say, oh, just because, it would be shocking. Um, I do have a lot of movies, believe it or not. But... And sometimes people see them and they eye me sideways. This man's lying. Look at, look at all these movies. But I kid you not, if you ask for nothing but movies for every gift-giving occasion for many, many years, you too can have a butt-ton of movies or whatever it is that you want to have. Of course, you don't have to do exactly that. But remember, you, the idea is that you're doing surgery to an income. You're setting everything in budgetary place. And each portion you choose for yourself will not be used for generosity. So choose very wisely. The portion designated for you should, I think, you know, be reflective of your values, the things that enrich your life in a kingdom kind of way. So if going out with friends is a really important enriching thing for you, your budget reflects that by setting aside more funds for that than something else. Don't be careless. The point is to keep track of it all, to have an ongoing mindful awareness of it so that you can see each portion that you've set aside for yourself and then set aside a bigger portion for generosity. So the way that Abby and I break it down is we have an income. Here's our giving to Van City. There's the, uh, you know, the like it or not electric bills or whatever. And here's what we choose to spend on ourselves, bill form or in luxury form. And then we take another portion to divest in generosity. And we deliberately set that last number higher than the number that it's for ourselves. And conversations like these are typically replete with uh, theoretical concepts of heart postures. It doesn't really matter how you spend your money. It's how your heart posture is or whatever, which matters, absolutely. But this, this is an exercise uh, for a heart posture with a quantifiable discipline. It could be donations or a cause. It could be just buying someone dinner or coffee. And if there's any money after that, after the thing that we've set aside for other people and then more money comes in for one reason or another, we just save it. it you know, it has to wait for a second. We're never allowed to just spend it because it's extra. It goes into savings until we can thoughtfully and prayerfully consider a good way to use it. God, what do you want to do with the extra money? Um, Abby likes to say all the time, just because you can comfortably afford it doesn't mean you should buy it. And people love to talk like, hey, nothing wrong with being rich. Then you can be more generous. But that's not necessarily true. Anyone can be generous. 
And if you're not generous with a little, please listen to me on this, you will not be generous with a lot. It does not happen. Simplicity and generosity are spiritual disciplines. These people talking like they're waiting for their bank accounts to fill up, and then, then they'll be like Santa Claus to the world. It's kind of an unrealistic plan. You have to plan it and then practice it. Waiting for organic occasions to embrace simplicity is a bit like waiting around for when you feel like fasting. It's not going to happen very much. Sure, some people are, uh, by nature, more generous than others, but the only way all of us can learn to embody a lifestyle of simplicity and generosity is to practice it in a deliberate and disciplined way. People trying to make, like, radical fitness changes don't usually just casually skip a donut. They make life decisions. They say things like, I'll go on a run on these days at these times, or I'll go to the gym with this routine, or I will no longer eat these things. I will eat these things, but only this time, or whatever it is. Economic divestment works much the same way. I am learning to understand my income as something that shapes me, for better or for worse. So in order to do counterformation against what this flow of money is doing to me, I will practice budgeting and economic divestment. I know what I make. I know how I spend it. So this portion goes to me for these reasons, and this portion will go elsewhere, to the church, to the poor, to the community. And when you choose to practice generosity, you are, in a sense, setting an income on a table and dividing it up into portions for other people, just like the early church. I believe that if we do this in such a way that we actually experience the feeling of, I could have more for me, but I choose not to, we will be shaped by that. And every time you make that decision, you will be shaped by that, by the Spirit of God, and changed into the type of person for whom generosity comes naturally. And in that process, you will be set free from anxiety around money, anxiety around possessions, fear of the future related to your money and your stuff. That inevitably leads to decisions that give way to more simplicity. When you start to learn, stuff doesn't really matter, I don't need all of it. In turn, it gives way to more room for generosity. I'm realizing I can live with less and less, which frees up more funds to go elsewhere, to provide for my church, to provide for justice and for those around me. Simplicity is not about the whole uh, minimalism fad. It is, I think, personally about taking a majority of what you could keep for yourself and choosing to give it away in order to cultivate a disciplined disposition of both generosity and of contentment. It's a way of disciplining myself to experience what Jesus taught. Giving things away is better than receiving them. I don't actually believe that innately. I have to try it and learn to understand that it is true through experience. Unfortunately, our, our churches will not take on a shade of radical perfection this side of resurrection, and that's okay. But I do believe that when we set out to take the teachings of Jesus, especially his most radical, impossible-sounding stuff, very seriously, we can become communities marked by beautiful, self-sacrificial love, evident right down to our wallets. So may it be so. With God, all things are possible. Would you guys mind letting me pray over you that the Spirit would enable you and empower you to live a lifestyle of radical generosity in the days and weeks to come?
I have a, a sense that maybe some of you are thinking something like, um, I'm, 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 I'm in, uh, this sounds good to me, I want to follow the teachings of Jesus faithfully, where I'm at right now, I have so little um, that it's not even a starting point. And I feel like the invitation from God's Spirit is to say, let's, let's begin now. I will teach you the ways of radical generosity, even with very, very little. And I think the invitation is to just ask. Ask God's Spirit, what would you have me do with an income? What would you have me do with the very little that I have? What would you have me do with a part-time job or a tiny savings account or whatever it might be? This is a scary question to ask, I understand, because when you ask Jesus if he wants you to do crazy radical stuff, he tends to say, yeah, yeah, lots of it. Um, that's intimidating. But it's also a bit like asking Jesus, do you want me to be set free? Yes, absolutely, I want you to be set free in every way. So Holy Spirit, would you make this a community more and more marked by radical generosity? Would you make this a community that can with integrity, look at a story like this from Acts and say, I realize we are not perfect. I realize that we are in process, but this sounds a bit like us. This sounds a bit like the way that we live, that we, we give out of excess for the sake of those in need in our community. When someone in the community, someone in our family at Saints Hill has need, we sell off things that we have. We give out of our excess. We get out, give out of even beyond our excess, out of what we have that we need to go on so that someone else can experience the radical generosity of self-sacrificial love. Holy Spirit, would you begin to change ways of thinking in us, ingrained in us by culture or upbringing, the world around us, like Alex was saying earlier, take every thought captive to remind us, no, King Jesus said, do not let money become a stronghold, a stranglehold, of anxiety or greed or selfishness, but teach us to walk in the ways of freedom. In the name of Jesus the King, amen.